Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. Then came to Jesus certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her to a wife, to wife, and he died childless, and the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry, and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. And certain of the scribes answered and said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that they durst not ask him any question at all. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do give thee thanks this morning for this word. We ask that thou wouldst be pleased to come by the power and the work of thy spirit to open our hearts, to open our ears. And we plead, O Lord, that thy word would indeed give us understanding. And we plead, O Lord, for thy blessing. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a day, in an age of unbelief and skepticism. Much of it, sadly, is found oftentimes within the church. There is a growing hostility toward Christ and toward His kingdom. Horatius Bonar, that Scottish minister from the 1800s, said, There is nothing so hardening as unbelief. And one great reason for this is that there is nothing so deceitful. It does not look a great sin No, sometimes not like sin at all. It pretends to be zealous for God. Thus it deceives deceives and hides itself and lessens its own wickedness. Well, here in our passage of Scripture this morning, Jesus is confronted again with those who oppose him and seek 
to destroy him. As you remember in the wider context, going back to chapter 19, this Pharisees came to Jesus and began to question his authority. By what authority do you do what you do? You heal the sick, you cast out demons, you raise the dead. By, by whose authority do you do that? Who gave you the authority to do that? And it's really here in this passage that we looked at last week and even this morning that we see again them questioning his authority. They're pushing back. And yet we find Jesus confronted by those within the church, those within the house of Israel who question. We must always be on guard, not against the skeptics outside, but those skeptics who come within. Oh, why do you do that? Oh, why do you do that? That is really the heart of the question. They were questioning why Jesus did what he did. They were questioning everything he said and did. As you saw last week, they began to question him about duty to the magistrate. And that was a tough passage. It was a tough passage to preach through. And yet Jesus says our duty is both to God and to those who rule over us. And they didn't like his response. Now again, he is opposed by religious leaders. And so as we look at our text here, we find the assault that comes again against Jesus. This is, this is the second form of trickery. Last week, the Pharisees used it, and now the Sadducees use it. Children, do you know why we call them the Sadducees? Some of you already know the answer. They're called the Sadducees because they were sad, you see. They were sad because of their unbelief, because they rejected God. But you know why the Pharisees were called Pharisees? Because they weren't fair, you see. Because they did not give honor to those to whom they were called to shepherd. And so who are these Sadducees? They are a small group of religious party who are very wealthy and influential. You have the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees. But this is the only place in Luke's gospel where the Sadducees are mentioned. You see much mention and reference to the Pharisees, but you see little other than this one account of the Sadducees. In Matthew's parallel account in chapter 22, verse 23 through 33, and in Mark 12, verses 18 through 27, you see the same thing, the Sadducees. But you notice where you see them? You see them in proximity to the temple. They were the priests, and so they rightly would be near the temple. They are the priests, and some would suppose that their origin comes from the Zadoks under the Old Testament. But they were those who guarded the temple. They are the ones who regulated the worship of the temple. And you know, among the Sanhedrin, there were a number of those within the Sanhedrin who were Sadducees as well. But we see them only in this short section. 
they ceased to exist after, the, after 70 AD. After the temple was destroyed, they were no more. Josephus, that early Jewish historian, describes them as more brutal than the Pharisees. The Sadducees accepted the Old Testament, primarily the Old Testament books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's interesting that the Sadducees regarded the first five books of the Old Testament as written by Moses. And yet we live in a day when even those who claim to be scholars deny the authorship given to Moses of those first five books. The Sadducees accepted them. But the Pharisees rejected not only the Scripture, but the oral traditions as well. The Sadducees, who were the purists, were also the rationalists. They denied the supernatural. They denied the resurrection. And that's the the point of our passage here. They denied the supernatural. And isn't it ironic that we look at ourselves as an age of unbelief, and yet you see that unbelief right there. Not only in the Pharisees, but in the Sadducees. And Jesus warned repeatedly against the leaven of the Pharisees and also the leaven of the Sadducees. Jesus warned there in Luke chapter 12, you recall uh, some time ago, there in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people insomuch as that they trod one upon another. And he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus says there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed. And so here he says that the Lord will reveal the hypocrisy of our own hearts. And we see there in that long passage there in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus issues a whole number of judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees. Actually eight judgments against them. And he spoke unto them and says that the scribes and Pharisees love to sit in the seat of Moses. They love the prominence. They wear the long robes and love the applause of men. But there in Matthew 23, Jesus warns them, be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees. But now we see that Jesus warns the people to be on guard against the leaven of the Sadducees. When you look in Mark or in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 6, Matthew 16 and verse 6, we find here Jesus saying unto them, Take heed. And beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Of course, they began to murmur and reason among themselves. It's because we've taken no bread. 
And so Jesus warns them, be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When you look in the parallel account to Luke's gospel, Acts chapter 23, there are a number of passages here I think are instructive for us to understand our text this morning. Acts chapter 23 and verse 8. There rose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the whole multitude was divided. They were standing before the Sanhedrin. And this great contention came between the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, you know, they were united on many things. They obviously were united on their um, plot to undo the work of Christ, to, to uh, plot against Him. But one thing that they were particularly divided on, verse 8, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Neither angels nor spirits. So they are equivalent to the modern day unbelievers who deny the resurrection. They deny the supernatural element. And you know, isn't it ironic that if they pride themselves in loving the law of Moses, did they not see the miracles? Did they not see the supernatural works of God among the Egyptians? And how easy it is for them to miss so many things and how easy it is for us to miss many things. But Jesus' warning here against the leaven of the Pharisees and particularly the Sadducees is that leaven which, which leavens dough, which causes dough to rise and to form into bread. In the same way, leaven has a wicked influence because the leaven of which Jesus talks about is that influence that comes not only from the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, but the unbelief of the Sadducees. You know, there's a lot in this passage, and I would encourage you to go back and read this on your own and, and to think about it, but there's a lot here in this passage because we live in a day, even within the church, when it's so easy for us to fall into unbelief. It's so easy to fall into hypocrisy. And so the question is, you know, what instruction does Jesus give them here, the crowd of people, because they indeed were influenced heavily by the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But here we come to a passage of Scripture where they are standing before Jesus, and there, when they come to him, and this is on the same day as the encounter last week with the Pharisees, it says certain of the Sadducees, so it wasn't the whole group of Sadducees, but a certain number of them, which deny that there is any res resurrection, ask him, saying, Master. Notice how they address him, just like the Pharisees. They address him with that title of Master. Oh, how easy it is for us to use those titles of honor and respect and yet give dishonor to the one who bears that title. They called him Master, but they were ready to kill him. 
They called him master, but they were ready to put him to death because they could not stand the words of Jesus just as the Pharisees. But here they put before Jesus this preposterous question. Notice, like the Pharisees last week, they use every scheme, they use every trickery. Oh, Master, Moses wrote unto us, it says, If any man's brother die having no wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brethren. Now, what they do is they go back to the Old Testament Leverite marriage law. There in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it speaks of that. Ruth chapter 4 speaks of that, that law. And this was a cultural custom that if a man died and was not able to provide an inheritance, then he would give himself or the wife of the deceased brother and give himself to the wife. Now, you have to be careful here because some people will appeal to this passage and say, well, you know, the Old Testament uh, doesn't condemn polygamy. The Old Testament doesn't condemn even this point. And yet, this is a social custom of the day that if any man's brother die and his wife is without child and she dies and he takes his wife that's all the passage says it doesn't go any further than that but notice what the Sadducees do okay Jesus suppose there were seven brothers the first took a wife and she died without children the second took a wife and he died childless and the third took her and in like manner the seven also and they left no children and died last of all the woman died poor woman seven husbands die and she is still childless now when you look at that the old testament says nothing about that but as they begin to ask questions about jesus isn't it interesting that they take the question and they twist it in such a way that they want to trap Jesus. They really are looking for some way to say, aha, we knew it. They're looking to trap him. But Jesus here knows exactly what they're doing. And so as he gives this preposterous, as they give this preposterous answer, Jesus knows full well what they are doing they are giving the most absurd thing. And then as they ask the question, okay, Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? She had seven. You notice the, the absurdity of the question? Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Why are they worried about you know, who she's going to be married to in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And so you have to be careful that even when skeptics and unbelievers come and they want a dialogue, you always have to be 
a little on guard when somebody says, I have a question. Okay, here it comes. They're not looking for an answer. They're just looking for some way to discredit the Christian faith or they're trying to discredit, you know, your testimony or whatever it may be. And here they were trying to discredit Jesus. So whose wife does she belong to? Who is she the wife of? She had seven husbands. Notice every time Jesus is confronted with conflict, he always deals with it in a different way. Last time, he just simply did not respond, didn't give him an answer. Here, Jesus gives him an answer and says, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain the world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so Jesus deals with the question head on. He answers it in the right way. But notice what he does. He says, in the resurrection, there is no marriage and there's no giving in marriage. How often times I've had those two gentlemen come knocking at the door and what do they say? We're here with the church of Jesus Christ. We're here to tell you. And they go through their spiel. It's always interesting to dialogue with them about polygamy in heaven. It's been outlawed on earth because it was illegal. But in heaven, Mormons will have their polygamous wives. But notice Jesus says in heaven, in the resurrection, there is no marriage. And Jesus confronts them head on and he deals with the question. The assault that comes oftentimes comes from all kinds of strange places. But here as Jesus is assaulted by them, he gives a strong defense. And here is where we see the beauty of our Savior. Here is where we see the wisdom that we learned last week of Christ. That he is able to answer every skeptic. He is able to answer everyone that comes against him. And so Jesus gives a good defense here. He says that there is no marriage in heaven. Neither can they die anymore. For they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. What he's pointing out here is that the Pharisees or the Sadducees fail to understand the difference between the present age and the age to come. And Paul in his epistles makes that wonderful distinction between the age that we are now in and the age to come. The church age, the age before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that age to come when the Lord Jesus Christ will indeed bring his children to heaven. And so he speaks of the fact that 
there is a distinction between the age that we now live in and the age to come. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't just say what we typically would do. No, that's not true. There is a resurrection. Okay. So, what, what can you say about that? Well, Jesus tells them. You notice what Jesus does? He always goes to the Old Testament. These are Jews. These are priests. These are rulers. And yet they deny the supernatural. They deny the resurrection. And Jesus appeals to the scriptures. And then he does there in verse 37, which utterly silences them. Notice in verse 37, Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. When you go back to Exodus chapter 3, you see that wonderful encounter. How they could miss the supernatural and say that they love Moses. Because there in Exodus chapter 3, you have this bush that is set on fire. It says there that the Lord reveals himself to Moses. How much more supernatural can you get than that? And calls him to bring Israel out of Egypt. The angel of the Lord, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and beheld the bush burned with fire. And the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Notice verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am, or here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from thy feet. For where thou standest is holy ground. Notice what the Lord God says to Moses. I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And then he begins to tell him of the affliction of God's people there in Egypt. And then verse 11, Moses said unto God, Who am I? that I should go unto Pharaoh. Verse 14, And God said unto Moses, Tell him, I am that I am. Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am sent me unto you. Jesus simply takes them to that account and says that Moses called him Lord. One who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there in John's account of the gospel, Jesus says what? I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus there in John's account of the gospel takes that I am statement that refers to God and applies it to himself. 
That's a great witnessing tool for Jehovah's Witnesses. They love that one. Jesus is the I am. And here Jesus says, go to the Old Testament scriptures and you will see that Abraham is the God of the living. We've seen that in our reading through the book of Galatians. That Abraham was not just for those nomadic people under the Old Testament, but he is the the one who is a worshiper of God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is the God of the living, not of the dead. And so Jesus says that Abraham died, and yet they live. You go to a passage like Psalm 40 where it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ dying there in prophecy and his soul was not what? Abandoned to the grave. His soul was not indeed in a state of decay. And so Jesus speaks of the patriarchs, the inheritance that is theirs But here Jesus gives a wonderful testimony in his defense of the great doctrine of the resurrection. Great doctrine which indeed they miss because it's clearly there in the Old Testament. And so he says he is the God of the living, not necessarily of the dead. They had no hope in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. They had no hope in the resurrection. They had no hope in anything. They simply went from generation to generation, just like many hyper-preterists do. There is no resurrection. There is no lifting of the curse. There is no future hope. Oh, what miserable creatures we are if we have no hope in a resurrection to come. But Jesus gives the defense, as we think of the consequences that result from that, we find here that certain of the scribes were there. And you have to understand, they're standing there in the courts of Israel. They're standing in that outer court, ready to observe the Passover feast. And so the Sadducees are there, The scribes are there. The Pharisees are there. So they're hearing all of this. Oh, don't you love the response of the scribes? Master, thou hast said well. You know why they said that? Because they despised the Sadducees. Because they said they're wrong. They deny the resurrection. But thou hast said well. Then notice the Pharisees. After that, they durst not or they dare not. Ask him any more questions at all. When you go to Matthew's account of this parallel in Matthew chapter 22, and the parallel accounts are are almost exactly the same. There in Matthew's account of the gospel... When you read what happens, 
Verse 34, when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 22, it says, when the multitude heard this, they were what? Astounded at his doctrine. And it put the Sadducees to silence. And the wonderful thing that we find in the the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is he always puts his enemies to silence. He being the, the way, the truth, and the life is able to put his enemies to flight. He is able to silence the most ungodly, irrational skeptic. And here the consequences of this result in the fact that when the dead are raised to life, they live forever. I've mentioned uh, Dr. or Reverend William Still before. It was a last of the evangelicals in the Church of Scotland back in the mid-40s. But William Still comes to this passage... And he clearly states the obvious. That when your spouse dies, when your children die, there's no more family relationships in heaven. You know why? Because William still says, friendships among believers is the beginning of heavenly life applied to the earthly life. Jesus brings them to Moses who is the God of the living. There is no death of the soul, Jesus says. Our souls in this present age are mortal. But in the age to come, our souls are immortal. And William still says that here we find a wonderful passage that reminds us That the most meaningful relationships in heaven are not husbands and wives and children. The most meaningful relationships in heaven are brothers and sisters in Christ. But Jesus draws all of this out to show them. As Matthew says, when they ask the question, whose wife will she be in heaven? Jesus says, you err in your unbelief. Because there is no relationship of that sort in heaven. There is no first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh brethren. You've twisted the scriptures. And yet, William still brings this out so clearly, and I love it. He's got such a strong, thick accent coming from Aberdeen, or coming from Aberdeen. And he says this. Oftentimes there's a coldness among Christians. And he says, this is absolutely wrong. Our friendships here as believers are a foretaste of heaven. Our friendships here are a foretaste of that eternal kingdom. And if we despise one another now, how can we say, oh, we look forward to heaven? Because there in heaven we will see our brother, our elder brother, our Savior and our Redeemer, and we will see all those whom Jesus says are the children of God, the children of the resurrection. They are the ones 
who will be received. Jesus tells them that he is the God of the living and all live unto him. Horatius Bonar says that ours is a dying world and immortality has no place upon earth. He says that which is deathless is beyond these hills. Mortality is here. Immortality is yonder. Mortality is below. Immortality is above. Paul says it well. In the first Adam, all die. But in the second Adam, we all live. Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful sermon entitled, The Departed Saints, Yet Living. Perhaps you know many saints. I know many godly saints. We know of many people when we were at Coral Ridge for many years who have died and gone to be with the Lord. And I, every now and then I'll tell Rosemary, I said, did you know who died? No, who? So-and-so. Really? But you know what? They don't just die and go to sleep. They don't just die and go to some unconscious state as some erroneously teach. But those departed saints are living. (coughs) Their bodies are what? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, resting in hope. And so departed saints still live. That first Adam brings death. But the second Adam brings life. So all who live in him are alive. And we don't have the time, and I would encourage you to go back to that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrection. Because there we find that this mortal body shall put on immortality. That there will come a day in which we will give up this mortal existence for that which lies yonder, that heaven, that glorious city that is yet to come. And as we think about much of the consequences of this, the consequences for the believer who has life in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we have hope. You know, as you look at this life of dying, this this valley of death, this veil of tears, there's nothing here that gives us any hope. Politicians disappoint us. There are many things in life that are uncertain. And yet one thing, believer, is certain. The promise of that resurrected life. And every funeral of a believer I have done is far more precious to me. Because there you can say at that committal service that their body rests in hope that the Lord Jesus Christ will return again. And let us learn from this passage the, the importance of the resurrection, the importance of that life that is to come. But let us see that, 
This life is a foretaste of that life. Our friendships as believers should be far deeper than our earthly relationships. We find here the Lord Jesus Christ impressing upon the crowds the resurrection of the dead and telling them, have you not heard what Moses says? Jesus reminds us that all heresies are error and that they come from pride or ignorance. Lucifer, by his pride, led a rebellion in heaven. All unbelief is pride. Those who deny the resurrection will indeed incur the wrath of God. And we see that even in the Old Testament. That those who die without the Lord, those who die with no thought of Him, will be resurrected unto death. There is a resurrection of life and there is a resurrection unto death. Jesus will return again to judge both the living and the dead, those who are alive when he returns and those who are in their graves. Friends, in this life, the one promise, the one hope that we have in the midst of of devastating things that happen in life is that glorious hope of that new day that is yet to come. Jesus was able to silence his enemies. Jesus was able to speak of that resurrection that is to come. And the astounding thing about this Savior is he always silences his enemies. He has the final word. He has the last word or the first word. In all things. And so this morning, in our preparation for the Lord's Supper, do we hold our spiritual relationships tighter than we do our earthly relationships? Pastor Steve Lawson says the real glory of heaven will not be the pearly gates and the golden streets or the jeweled walls. But the real glory of heaven will be the one who sits enthroned in its midst, Jesus Christ. And believer, we celebrate this morning at this table the glory of the risen Christ. We celebrate together that as brothers and sisters, we are joined together even in the midst of this valley of death, longing for that age to come where all of our family relationships will be stronger than these earthly ties. May we find hope in the midst of death, for Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Are you clinging to this Christ? Have you trusted in Him for your salvation? Are you clinging to Him who says he is the resurrection and the life, I would urge you today to begin to think more about this Christ because he silences even the worst skeptics and unbelievers.
May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give Thee thanks this morning for reminding us of the glorious truth of the resurrection. We thank You that in You we have life, that in You we will be raised from these mortal bodies to those heavenly bodies of which Paul reminds us. O Lord Jesus Christ, we give Thee thanks for that glorious promise of resurrection. We ask that as we gather together as brothers and sisters around this table, that we would understand that the ties we have are far greater than these earthly ties. Lord, bless this word to our hearts and prepare us as we eat together. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.